The Bible claims that there is life after death, and it goes beyond that. The Bible actually claims that we're going to be held accountable in our next life for what we do and what we don't do in this life. I mean, look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It says, a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. I mean, this is the clear Bible claim, but it kind of sounds strange, doesn't it, to be talking about this in a public place, to be speaking this out loud in the world in which we live in? I mean, our world really does try to infer that it's the uneducated, it's the ignorant, it's the simple-minded, the less thoughtful, the easily deceived people who buy into this idea, but not someone who's really got it together. It's like you might hear about this in a place called church but you're never going to hear it discussed seriously in an academic setting. Here's the problem with that view. It doesn't mesh with the facts. When you really, in an honest and an objective way, with your brain turned on, look at this subject, the facts lead to a very different conclusion. In fact, here's the truth we want to look at this weekend. Believing that heaven and hell exist, unlike what many seem to claim, believing that heaven and hell exist is both reasonable and intelligent. It's not the result of turning your brain off. It's actually the result of turning it on, of becoming a more thoughtful person instead of just going with contemporary trend. And all you have to do is consider a wide range of issues. And I thought I'd help us do that this weekend during this talk. We're trying to picture this. Heaven and hell really exist. It it becomes easy to believe that it's reasonable and intelligent that heaven and hell exist when you consider universal belief. Universal belief. When you go back and study civilization, mankind, from the very, very beginning of history you find that there has been a universal embracing, a universal belief in the concept of life after death. And this isn't something that was learned. This isn't something that was deceptively taught. This is something that has been a part of every civilization, regardless of how primitive or so-called civilized. Privatized tribes that have never seen the light of day to the rest of the world have bought into this as well as anyone else. It's as if mankind is born with an innate understanding of the fact that they are eternal. This is the reason that humans, unlike in the animal kingdom, bury their dead. It's because the body, yes, is buried, but the soul goes on to another place. Belief in the afterlife is not a new concept. The new concept, the Johnny-come-lately concept, is the idea that there's no afterlife. And what's brought about this new concept has nothing to do with legitimate discoveries, new understanding, scientific research. It's just there are some people who've decided they want that to be true. There's no afterlife. And it's because it fits with their chosen system of faith, their system of belief that there is no God, which is also more Johnny-come-lately, more new of a concept. But just because they want it to be true doesn't mean it's true, and just because they want us to believe that it's an intellectual conclusion doesn't mean that it is, because universal belief has always concluded differently. Believing that heaven and hell exist becomes reasonable and intelligent when you understand that it really does 
mesh with nature. I mean, all you have to do is consider nature. Nature itself thrives on and pictures the reality that out of dying comes life. I mean, it just does. I mean, all of us know that in nature, death leads to life. A seed is buried in the ground, dies, and bursts forth into new life. I mean, it's a part of our everyday life. We just don't think about it much. Uh, Roxanne and I, we, we uh, went on vacation to a tropical place one time, didn't have a ton of money for bringing home gifts. And so we brought home, well, coconuts. They were cheap. You found them on the beach, right? We brought home coconuts, and we took our coconut, and we put it in some lava rocks with water and just put it there, see what would happen. It was weird. It started growing roots down into those lava rocks. It started sprouting a little plant. And today, many, many years later, we've got like a six, seven-foot palm tree in our house. It's an unbelievable thing. It came from a coconut we picked up in the tropics. It's nuts. We love We love this palm tree because in the dead of winter, it reminds us there are places worthy to be lived in in the wintertime. You know, it's like, it's crazy. But it's just nature proving out the idea of out of death comes life. And God used this as a metaphor to talk about the afterlife. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 37. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps, of wheat or of something else. And he's saying nature itself verifies the reality of out of death coming life. And so all of a sudden, believing in the afterlife and the idea of heaven and hell isn't an uneducated, foolish way of looking at life. It's kind of a reasonable and intellectual way to look at it. It makes sense. Believing that heaven and hell exist becomes reasonable and intelligent when you consider another broad base of research that's been done in recent centuries, and it's the idea of death experiences. Death experiences. Now, I know that one of these left alone doesn't prove anything. In fact, all of them together doesn't create an absolute proof. But we're looking for probabilities. We're looking for intelligent realities, what's reasonable. And when you put all this together, you start going, hmm, this could be reasonable. And death experiences, which are basically pursued more from a secular view than from a spiritual view, are concluding that there is a lot to the idea of there being life after the body can no longer function after death. In fact, this last year, I, I'm so interested in the topic that I read two books. One was completely secular, and the other was very, very spiritual, both sides of the perspective. But both of them came to the same conclusion. There's life after death, and it painted pictures of that. The, the first book was a book called Proof of Heaven. Proof of Heaven. And the subtitle was A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife. And it's by a guy named Eben Alexander. And he tells the story himself that he was basically an agnostic on all of this different stuff. He didn't really believe much in the afterlife. Didn't think he a scientist and what you can see and what you can touch. And then he died. And as a neurosurgeon, he knew what this meant. What he developed, and you could read about it in the book if you chose to, is a, a disease that literally killed him shut off the part of his brain that can think and can have any sense of consciousness. And in this comatose state, which almost everyone dies from, where there was no possibility for thinking, for understanding, for being conscious, he was 
fully alive. And he came out of that state miraculously, and he concluded that he was wrong before, and that there is an afterlife. There is no other explanation. Now, if you read the book, you'll go, whoa, that was a weird experience he had. But he concluded there is an afterlife. And then I read another book, uh, very spiritual in its view, simple but really profound, called Heaven is for Real, a little boy's astounding story of his trip to heaven and back by his dad, Todd Burpo. And uh, I just thought the name itself deserved to be known by the world, Burpo. Um, We could sound that one out together. But he wrote this book about his son's journey from heaven back to earth. And this little boy died. And when he woke back up, when they brought him back to life, he knew things he couldn't have possibly known. They had never told him that he had had a sister who died. But he came back talking about his sister whom he met on this journey from heaven and back. And he had never met his grandfather, but he came back being able to describe his grandfather and stories that only the grandfather would have known. And they wrote all these things out. It's pretty remarkable. And once again, it's not like, oh my gosh, put all your faith in this book. I'm just saying, when the study of death experiences is pursued, you start believing and buying into, whoa, there's something after this life. Years ago, I uh, kind of studied a book called Beyond Death's Door. It was very, very popular in the day, decades ago. It's by a guy named Maurice Rawlings. He was a cardiologist and very, very uh, successful one. He was on the National Teaching Faculty of the American Heart Association back in the 70s, and he wrote this book about Beyond Death's Door. And I, I just want to read you his words so you can get it straight from him. I quote from his introduction. Before gathering material for this book, I personally regarded most after-death experiences to be just fantasy or conjecture or imagination. Most of the cases I had heard or read about sounded as if they represented euphoric trips of an anonic, anoxic mind. That's a mind starved of oxygen. So he's basically saying, I just thought it was hallucinations people were having for physiological reasons. But then one evening in 1977, I continue to quote, I was resuscitating a terrified patient who told me he was actually in hell. And he begged me to get him out of hell and not to let him die. And when I fully realized how genuinely and extremely frightened he was, I too became frightened. Subsequent cases with terrifying experiences have burdened me with a sense of urgency to write this book. Now I feel assured that there is life after death And this phrase really got me. And not all of it's good. Now when you realize a lot of this comes from a skeptic's view, when a lot of it comes from a secular research pattern, and yet it seems to be stamping universal belief throughout history and nature's picture, it kind of adds some credibility that this is not just a a fantasy of ignorance. This really is reasonable and intelligent. And then it goes one step further. Because Jesus' teaching and the Bible's claims also concur that heaven and hell really exist. And I know many of you don't put a ton of stock in that yet, but we saw over the last two weeks that Jesus' teaching and Jesus' claims are reasonable. It's intelligent to accept them as true based upon just fact. The Bible And it claims to be God's word. It's reasonable and intelligent to accept that just based upon an examination of the facts. And they support what everything else points to, that there's life after death. In fact, they make strong claims. 
Look, look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. Then those who die, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous who die will go away to eternal life. And he's talking about two sides of an afterlife. Now, for me, it's interesting it satisfies my curiosity of thought that universal belief in nature and, and death experience research supports the idea of the afterlife. That's interesting to me. But what sells it for me, what stamps it as absolute for me, is that the guy who lived and predicted they die and three days later come back, the guy that fulfilled the prophecies hundreds of years before he came in that he would come and die and raise again, that that one, after dying and then coming back to life, said that it's true. That's a big deal, something to consider. And since Jesus and the Bible talk about the afterlife in terms of two sides, I want to look at both those sides. The first is one that that people of faith love to embrace. It's the idea of heaven. And Jesus and the Bible claim that heaven is a real place where real people go. It's not a fantasy. It's not an imagination. It's real. Look at how Jesus said it in John 14 too. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. So after he rose again, as we'll look at in two weeks on Easter, and and after he ascended to be with God, I mean, literally floated into the sky out of sight, and the angel said, he's going to come just like he just left you. He told us where he was going to go. We can know. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you in this place called heaven, and I'm going to then come back and receive you. Heaven is a real place, Jesus taught. And Jesus in the Bible tell us all kinds of things we can know about heaven. There are many we can't, but, but they tell us that God is there. Jesus made it clear that in heaven, God is there. Which, if you kind of follow the meaning, it means that love is there, and light is there, and goodness is there, and justice is there, and, and hope is there, because God is there. Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, how to pray. We know it as the Lord's Prayer, but it's not some prayer we're supposed to just repeat mindlessly. It's an outline for how we should pray, and how we're supposed to always begin our prayers is by connecting with the Father. Our Father in what? Heaven. Our Father in heaven. If you believe God exists, you have to believe that heaven exists because this is his dwelling place. Our Father in heaven. God is there. Jesus in the Bible teaches that this place called heaven that's real is the place where life will finally be experienced as it was meant to be. Life will be as it was meant to be. And all of us know that we, we know life isn't being experienced today as it was meant to be. I mean, I, I, I know I'm not the man I was meant to be. I, I'm so filled with flaws and I, I'm so easy towards failure that that I'm not the man I should have been. I don't love like I was created to love, and I don't forgive like I was created to forgive, and I don't experience joy and purpose and significance like I was. I'm, I'm kind of always seeking to be filled up, but I'm not always living as if I'm already filled up, right? I look at the world I live in. I look at our lives, and it's not the world that we know was meant to be. It's falling far short. But Jesus says heaven's the place where life will be as it was meant to be. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 4. It says, God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Imagine that. 
There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The song that we sang earlier, Where I Belong, he says, I know that the skin and bones I'm in right now is just being rented. I know I'm going to breathe my last in the end. But I'm still looking for the place where I really belong, that place where life will be what it's supposed to be, where the weak will be made strong and the righteous will actually be the ones who win. And and that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Do Do you realize that what Jesus tells us, what the Bible tells us is that heaven is the place where everything we hate will be missing. Everything we hate. I mean, what a hope. And I can relate to it in a lot of different ways, but the best way I relate to it is through the reality of my relationship with my dad. My dad got pancreatic cancer in late 1999. Anyone who was a part of Northridge at the time kind of knew about the journey because I shared it so much in my teaching, but... Uh, he died in the year 2000 when I first saw him after learning that he was going to die of this terrible disease. I was like ashen, um, grieving more than I knew I had the capacity to grieve. And my dad looked at me and said, what's the deal, man? You can't scare me with heaven. I mean, heaven was so real to him that even this life-threatening journey he was on couldn't scare him. And then my dad died. What you might not know about my dad is my dad the entire adult life that he lived, he couldn't walk. He had polio when he was 17 years old, and and at best he could walk with forearm crutches where he'd swing his legs forward, and the crutches were his legs, and he had mammoth arms. And then they invented, during my dad's lifetime, they invented those little carts, you know? I used to love going to Cedar Point with my dad because front of the line, baby, front of the line, you know? No way, it was great. When my dad uh, was in new context with people who had never seen him before, I noticed that people didn't look at him like I did. He was a strong, intelligent, successful guy. They, they looked at him as a man physically challenged, walking on crutches, riding on a cart. They couldn't get past this thing. And I'll be honest, my dad overcame this challenge, but he hated it because, you see... He couldn't run with his boys. He couldn't play football with his boys. He couldn't be active with his boys. He couldn't even carry in a bag of groceries from the car. His wife had to take that role in their relationship, and he hated it. But you see, everything that we hate in this world will be missing when we get to heaven. And so one of the greatest pictures I have of this in my memory is when we were celebrating his ongoing, we put his crutches against his casket because we knew that that which he hated he no longer needed because it wasn't going to be in heaven. That's what Jesus said it is. We all hate different things because we've all been hurt by different things. We all hate different things because we all lack different things in life. But heaven is that place where life will finally be as it was meant to be. Some of you have never experienced love like it's meant to be experienced. Well, heaven is the place where you'll finally experience it. Some of you have never experienced joy like it's supposed to be experienced, the joy of living. Well, heaven is the place where you'll experience it. It's a real place, Jesus says. Jesus told us, and the Bible tells us, and this is an unfortunate reality. It's one I really hate, quite frankly. All will not enter. Heaven is this perfect place where all of us long to be, but all of us won't be there. All will not enter. 
And that's what Jesus taught. The one who loves all so much that he died for all says all will not enter. In fact, look what he says in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. What's interesting about that passage to me is that I think most of us, even the really gracious among us, kind of think, well, Stalin's not going to get in. You know, Hitler's not going to get in. These people who ravaged other people's lives around the planet, they're not going to get in. But, you know, everybody else probably going to. But Jesus said, no, that's not true. He said, there are even those who will call me Lord, Lord, who will have done all kinds of things in my name who won't enter the kingdom of heaven. There are people who sit in church every single weekend and are more religious than other people who will never get into heaven. There are people who claim to be Jesus followers and Christians and claim to know his love and his truth better than anyone else. In fact, they're, they're denigrating those people who are trying to follow Jesus in a different way. And, and he says, many who say, Lord, Lord, won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that all will not enter. I mean, when you think about what heaven is, it's really a sad reality. Especially because Jesus and the Bible make it clear that heaven is forever. It's forever. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. Forever life. I mean, the life that we've always longed for will be the one we experience in heaven and it will last forever. And this is a big deal. Because on earth... I mean, most of us, not all of us, but most of us have had at least some good moments in life. But they don't last. They're very brief. Good moments, but they don't last. I remember when Roxanne and I got married, she had looked forward to, you know, her wedding day all of her life, right? And then we got married. We, I mean, all the planning, all the preparation, all the dreaming, and, you know, we walked up on the stage, and we said, I do, and we walked off. And before, before anyone left the auditorium, before anyone came back and greeted us and congratulated us for being married, she looked over at me and she said, that's it? And then she goes, I want to do that again. Because good moments, those great moments, those moments we dream of, last just a moment here. I, I was reminded of this again. The, um, just uh, a month ago, I was able to be on a cruise. Roxanne and I were on a cruise and and I tell you, I, I really love cruising. I love water, I love boats. But the reason I love cruising is because do you know what responsibilities you have on a cruise? None. Do you know what you get to eat on a cruise? Everything. And what I really love about cruising is that, I mean, a few people get on this boat and go into the middle of nowhere and see, I'm so used to being on display. I'm so used to, you know, living more of a public life that I love getting on these boats because it's like I can let my hair down and I can be myself and we can enjoy ourselves and we can relax and I have no responsibilities, right? It's like, oh, it's just awesome. It's a great moment. And we were at the Bon Voyage of this cruise and, and a couple came over and said, Hi, Brad. We go to Northridge. And I went, no! <laughs> Hid my drink, cigar behind my back. No! no just kidding. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I dove off the boat. I mean, I'm done. Good moments don't last long here on the planet. But God tells us that heaven is forever. One of the things I hate most about this life is that those good moments don't last, but God says heaven will last forever. 
It's pretty neat. Jesus also tells us that what we do on earth determines what we do there. This is fascinating to me. What we do here determines what we do there. I mean, he's the one that said it. He told a story about it in Luke 19. Look what he says. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. And Jesus told this story. He says, you know, God gives gifts, and then he goes away, and he asks you to do something positive with those gifts. And one day he's going to come back, and he's going to say, what did you do? And if you did the right things, he's going to say, well done, mine. You get to be in charge of ten cities. I don't know about you, but... That means that, according to Jesus, those who are in heaven are going to help him run the universe. That's a scary thought, isn't it? It kind of explains Ohio to me. You know, God gave it to to the wrong person, you know? (laughs) Just a thought. Might even explain country music. I'm not sure, but it could. But the bottom line is that it's it's going to be an awesome eternity. It's not going to be boring. It gives us a good reason to live and invest our lives for him now because it's going to determine what we get to do forever. But Jesus, in talking about the afterlife, doesn't just talk about heaven. And I know this is odd because Jesus is the one who proved a greater love for people in this world, a greater love for everyone in this world than anyone else. And yet Jesus also taught us that hell is a real place. Hell is a real place where real people will go. And and I have to tell you, I hate the concept of hell. I hate it. I hate it. I've heard people preach on this and teach on this as if they were excited people were going to go there. I think those people are sick and need help because this is not a great subject. Quite frankly, I can't comprehend the reality of this place as Jesus described it, and I would prefer to dismiss it and disbelieve it, to throw it out of my, my, my belief grid. The only problem is that the Bible, God's Word, Jesus, God's Son, makes it clear that it's true. And as with many other difficult truths that God declares in the Bible, I'd prefer to ignore this one. I'd prefer to reject this one. And there are many doing this today with many of the truths that God has spoken. They're just reinventing their own truth. They're either trying to manipulate the Bible into saying it's not true or saying it's only a couple times versus a lot of other times and things, and and they're declaring it not to be truth, and they're just dismissing it. The only problem is God's God, they're not. And as much as I'd like to dismiss the truth of hell, as much as I can't comprehend it and hate it, I've decided that since I'm not God and he is, and I don't determine truth and he does, that I have to teach his truth, not my truth. Because here's the reality. My deciding not to believe something and my deciding to tell you that something in the Bible isn't really true doesn't change the reality. I can make you feel better about your life, and I can make you feel about, better for a short time about things, but in the end, his truth is going to win, and we're going to be held accountable to his truth, not our truth. And so since Jesus, the most loving and gracious teacher in history, who died for all people because God so loved the world, he sent his son, he taught on the reality of hell, I have to teach on his truth, not mine. 
In Luke chapter 16, verses 22 and 23, it says the rich man also died and was buried. This is Jesus talking, and he says this rich man who died was in hell where he was in torment. Jesus said he was in torment. We need to take this issue seriously. We need to stop buying people who are deciding what Jesus taught is wrong because who are they? And we need to start taking seriously what Jesus taught was true. And Jesus and the Bible teaches that hell is a horrible place, a place of torment because it's a place where God is absent. I mean, everything that makes heaven heaven, God being present, is what makes hell hell because God is absent. It means that love is absent and light is absent and hope is absent and goodness is absent. In Matthew 7, 23, after he says, even those who say, Lord, Lord, I'll say, you're not going to be in the kingdom of heaven, then, then I will tell them plainly, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This we know. Those who spend eternity hell will be cast away from God's presence. He will be absent. And it goes further. He tells us heaven, this real place, is where people will experience something beyond earthly suffering because no earthly suffering can compare. Matthew 18, 8, Jesus kind of lays it on the bottom shelf. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away because it's better for you to go through life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And know this, the Bible pictures hell with some of the worst imagery you can imagine so that we'll understand the torment of it. It pictures it with fire because could there be anything more painfully unbearable than dying in fire? But hell is a place where the suffering is so great it's like living in it. Darkness, it describes it as. Total aloneness and total isolation. And we were made for relationship. We know solitary confinement is a torture because it drives sane people insane. And yet this is a place... This place called hell of total darkness. Gnashing of teeth is used to describe hell. It's just a sign of such extreme remorse that, that we just give in to our grief. It owns us. Jesus teaches us the Bible claims that, that hell is forever. Now, there have been a bunch of people who have tried to write around this truth and try and change this truth, but the fact is what the Bible says and what the, Jesus taught is that it's forever. I wish it wasn't. I wish it wasn't even real. But look at Revelation 14, 11, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night. Time and time and time and time again, it's told that it will be forever. It's really a discouraging issue for me, quite frankly. But it starts turning good again when I realize that the Bible also tells us that God desires it for no one. God doesn't want anyone to be there. I mean, look at 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient. He's not wanting anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He wants everyone to come to repentance. The reality is that Jesus made it clear that, the, that hell was made for the devil and his demons, not for people. talks about that in Matthew 25, 41. The only people who end up in hell are those who refuse to accept God's grace, who refuse to acknowledge their sin and repent of it and trust in Jesus. 
which means we're in a dangerous world right now because there are a ton of people who talk about Jesus and talk about his love and talk about his truth, but, but they will not acknowledge their sin. They've decided to readjust the Bible and readjust truth to make their choices and their life no longer sinful. And therefore, they don't have anything to repent of. They don't have anything to confess. They don't have anything to acknowledge. And what happens is, that means they never experience true forgiveness and grace, which means by their own choice, refusal to accept God's truth, acknowledge their sin, and put their trust in Jesus. What happens to them? They, by their own choice, choose to go where God doesn't want them to go, to a place beyond my comprehension called hell. Now, all of this adds up for me to some unbelievable implications and it should have great ramifications in how we apply it to our lives. Let me just give you a couple. The application should be simple. The reality of heaven and hell should motivate us, should motivate us to know where we're going to spend eternity. I mean, we should know where we're going to spend eternity. For my entire ministry, when I've had the opportunity to really dig deep into people's lives, I I love to ask, so, you know, do you think that when you die, you're going to spend eternity in heaven? And almost everyone I've ever asked that question, almost everyone, gives me a three-word answer. I hope so. Duh. Of course, I hope so. But let me just tell you something. I hope so is for the lottery, friends. I hope so is for gambling. I hope so is for things that don't matter, things of little consequence. I hope so is not for where you're going to spend eternity. That's something you need to know so. To which a lot of people, well, I can't know that. How can I know that? You can know that because God told you how you can know that. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Okay, now we know the gift's been given, and who has it? The son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. I write these things to you who put your full trust and dependence in the name of the son of God so that you may... What's that word? That was lousy. That was really horrible. I'm working hard for you. Can you do just do a little work for me, really? who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know it. This isn't a hope-so deal. This is a no-so deal. Do you know why people say they hope so? Because too many people are living their own truth instead of Jesus' truth. Too many people are trying to earn their way there. I think I've done enough. I hope I've done enough. You can never do enough. You'll never will do enough. The only one who could do enough is Jesus. See, he came and lived the perfect life you failed to live, and then he died on the cross because the wages of our sin is death. He never sinned. He died on that cross for our sin. He was buried so that all the junk and darkness of our life and our choices could be taken into that tomb and buried. And when he burst forth in new life, it was to give us new life. And when we acknowledge our sin, instead of trying to hide it or say it's not sin when we confess it and repent and turn from it and trust him, we can know we have eternal life. Do you know? Before I finish this talk, I just want to give you the opportunity to know. And so there's more to the talk to come, so please don't run away. But if you would, just honor the moment and pray with me just for this moment. And if you're watching Northridge On Demand, just bow with me in prayer this moment.
And if you're already a believer, you know you're a believer, I just encourage you to pray for those who don't know. And if you don't know, then why not take my words in this prayer and make them yours? Just say, God, I, I really do believe that you have given us eternal life. I don't deserve it on my own. I've sinned against you. I've disappointed you. I've failed you. I, I've lived contrary to your truth, contrary to how you designed me. But that's why Jesus came. Jesus, you died on the cross for my sin. And you rose again to give me new life. And I'm trusting you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed with me before I give you the last couple of passages, I just really want to encourage you, to, please let us know. We want to we encourage you to take some next steps in your relationship with God. We've put some information together, but we have to know you prayed with me. And so we put together in this program a thing we call a connection card. And all you have to do is fill it out. It's so easy. Check off the circle at the bottom where it says, Today I prayed to receive Jesus. And then as you're leaving our live worship services, we have boxes at every single exit. You just throw it in there. You don't have to talk to anyone, and we'll send you this information. And if you're watching on demand, online, this Northridge service, we just ask you to hit that What Next button, and we'll do the same exact thing for you. But there's more to the application. You see, the reality of heaven and hell should motivate us to know where we're going to spend eternity, but it should also motivate us to invest our lives for the eternal and not the temporal. I mean, by nature, I'm, I'm kind of investing most of my days and most of my gifts and most of my resources for today, which can blow away and become nothing. But look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Too many of us treasure the temporary, so we're living for the temporary. We need to start treasuring the eternal and living for the eternal because heaven and hell are real. And what we do and don't do here really does determine what we'll do and not do there. If we don't trust Jesus, we'll never be in heaven. If we don't then live for Jesus, we'll not experience all he wants for us there. And there's one last application. Since heaven and hell are real, it should motivate us to do one last thing. And I want to give you a couple of passages that kind of identify this one thing. In the book of Jude, it's a very short book, one chapter. In verses 21 through 23, look what God says. Keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So just stay in God's love. Keep living God's love as you're waiting for your own eternal life to begin. And it says also, in the meantime, be merciful to those who doubt. Don't be condemning and judging of those who doubt. Help them to see the truth. Don't compromise the truth, but help them to see it. And then it, look what it says. Snatch others from the fire and save them. God's word makes it so clear that heaven and hell are real that he says there are people who are dangling over the reality of an eternity of suffering in God's absence. And those of us who know Jesus can change their eternity by sharing the story. Can imagine walking through my neighborhood and having one of my neighbor's homes on fire and knowing they're in there and just saying, well, nothing I can do. Hope someone does something about it. And ignoring their spiritual reality is just as bad as walking by them burning in a house physically. 
And yet we do it in grocery stores and workplaces in our neighborhoods all the time. And it's got to stop. Jesus tells us how in 1 Peter 3.15 through the Apostle Peter, he says, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Live his lordship. Live his truth. Let it be known. And then always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that's in you. You see, when you're living with Jesus as Lord, you have a joy they don't have. And they're going to say, what is it about you? You... You're going to have a grace they don't have. And they go, what is it about you? You're going to stand on a truth that they don't know. Then they say, what is it about you? And you can share it, snatching them from the fire. Since heaven and hell are real, it should motivate us to help others escape hell and to discover the hope of heaven. We should do everything in our power to help others escape the reality of an eternity of hell and to experience the hope of an eternity in heaven. We have it in our hands. Here at Northridge, we acknowledge that our mission in life as believers is to wake the world up to Jesus because in Jesus they find and discover eternal hope. And we do this by showing them his love and telling them his truth, not making up truth that makes them feel better about life, but telling them his truth so they can find freedom and forgiveness and then involving them. And in so doing, they get to go from the reality of hell to the reality of heaven in their life. And we have a great opportunity. Do you know it's coming in two weeks, right? We have Easter coming. It's a time when people are open to spiritual discussions when, like no other. And we really want to encourage you. Here at Northridge, it's so easy to invite someone to come to Easter because we have 2,321 services that weekend. It's an amazing <laughs> adventure. Actually, we only have 12. But 12 is a lot of services, a lot of opportunity over a three-day period. And we're, we're challenging you to involve them, to invite them. And, and we're making it easy. Here in Plymouth, in your cup holders, we put our invitation cards. In each packet, there are three that you could give out to people in your life. And I know from all the other services this weekend, there are people going around stealing them out of other people's cup holders. And that's just... We're going to talk about stealing in a series coming up. But, <laughs> but if, if you didn't find one of these in your cup holders at the guest services, you can go and get your own. And if you need more than three, and I hope you will, you can get as many as you want. It's kind of like Doritos. Use all you want. We'll make more, okay? And, and just invite everyone you can. And we made it small this year so that you can put it in your pocket. It's easier to carry around than those big ones we usually have. And you can take it everywhere you go. Invite people. Why? Because every person you're going to meet in the next two weeks, every person you've ever met in your entire life is going to spend eternity either in heaven or hell, and we can have a role in where they go. A simple card can change it. And I also want you to know we've, we really want to make it easy for you. So on NorthridgeChurch.com, we've, we've created an e-invite. And all you have to do is go, and you can literally put in their email, and you can send them this e-invite. And it's just saying, come to Easter for Christ's sake. And they can read that however they want, you know. That's up to them. But it's for Christ's sake and for theirs. And all you have to do is send this to them so that they can be here too because every person that you have in your email contact list is going to spend eternity either in heaven or hell and you can make a difference there. Picture this, what Jesus said is true. Picture this, what the Bible claims is true. Picture this, heaven and hell really exist. And Jesus is the one who makes the difference. Let's introduce people to Jesus this Easter. So glad you came. See you next time.